0: Many books have been written about the difference between managing and leading. Some leaders are not good managers. And some managers are not geared to leading an organization. Both are needed, mind you, but they're different. Uh, one difference is that a manager usually works within a system with Uh, prescribed goals that have been given to him or her. And a leader is the one who is usually given the task to define the goal or the vision and is to inspire action within the organization. And as I review my own experience in the business world and at church, it occurs to me, as I'm sure it does you, that we have far more managers than what we have leaders. Certainly the need of the hour is for leadership. There's a great dearth of leadership. And in this election season, there is a great dearth of leadership. Good leaders translate vision into reality. Leadership is a, it's a mindset for action. You don't need a position or a title for that. One article I read in the Harvard Business School boiled it down to two traits. Leadership is effective communication and then telling the hard truths. Effective communication and telling the hard truths. Now that's not all there is to leadership, but when it comes to leadership, certainly an essential item is the ability to define reality, to tell the truth. And that's what Peter does in this passage. As we read, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. In those days, in other words, given the times, given the circumstances of no longer having Jesus present, of experiencing that tumultuous time around the crucifixion, and now just some days later, there is an acute need for leadership, and it says, Peter stood up. In times of pain, in times of of conflict, leadership is needed. Somebody needs to stand up. You may not know all the answers. No leader does. But you know something has to be done. And I love what it says. Among the brothers he stood up. Peter was not there to just grill the 120 and give him a piece of his mind. He was there to give some direction to encourage. He was among them. He was one of them. They needed direction. And the remaining apostles felt it necessary to replace Judas and to get the number back to the original 12 that Jesus had originally set up. And if there are other reasons as to why they needed to fill that out, some people said, well, it's because there are 12 tribes of Israel and 12 thrones to... To judge in the, in the future kingdom. That's frankly, I think, more conjecture. We don't know that for sure as far as why there were 12 of the apostles here. But the bottom line is Judas needed to be replaced. And notice as a leader that Peter kind of explains all of this. He goes into detail as to what Judas did. In other words, he is he is defining reality. And I think if there's anything that a leader does, it is that you have to face the music and define reality. That is a large portion of what any good leader is to be about. And he recounts that basically Judas was a cause for great pain and great disappointment. And now they have to replace him. And he says... Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, he was numbered among us. He took part in the ministry with us. I hear pain in those words. I hear great disappointment in those words. How disheartening it is to have someone who ministers with you, who is close to you, who you travel with, who you have these close bonds with, And then they turn on you. And in this case, betray. Not just Jesus, but the disciples themselves. And just think of the reputation that Judas has established for himself for thousands of years. I mean, who wants to call their kid Judas, right? You automatically attribute Betrayer with the name. And then think of this. He was among the 12. They traveled around, ministered a lot. There were people, other people who knew Judas. There had to be other people who Judas influenced, who liked him, who he taught. It wasn't just The 12 or the other 11 who were disappointed, think of all the others that got swept up in that betrayal and were disappointed. Maybe it's why James says the teacher shall incur a stricter judgment when you are in leadership and there are people following you and you do what Judas did. Man, Uh, that's serious stuff. Here's the thing, Christ knew all along what Judas was going to do. Now, think of this, I mean, if, if we had the, the ability to somehow predict the future, and you knew somebody would betray you, talk behind your back, hurt you, I mean, you would construct it so that that wouldn't happen, you would separate yourself, you would do something, right? Right? Jesus knew it all along and let it play out. That's an amazing thing. We read in John 6, long before Judas gave that fateful kiss in Gethsemane, we read this, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him not only was judas of the devil but we're told in acts 1:16 that he was a guide to those who arrested jesus considering the stakes we could basically say that judas was a tour guide to hell that's a job i wouldn't want i've been a tour guide I wouldn't want to be a tour guide to hell. That's exactly what he was. We could spend time talking about how people are going to hurt and disappoint you. We could go off on that. We could talk about how sin had reached its peak in the apostolic ranks. We could talk about the need not to revere leaders. Respect, sure, but don't put them up on a pedestal. Because sure enough, they got feet of clay and something's going to happen. You're going to be disappointed. I mean, if this was the focus of the passage, we might go off on one of those. But it's not the focus. Because Peter does something quite remarkable in the middle of all this. And we alluded to it when we read our passage in John. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And he chose him anyway to be... A part of the 12, it indicates there's, there's some kind of plan in action here. And that's a theme that we're going to discover and develop here. But first, I want us to realize this. That if you choose to camp out on your hurt and disappointment, I mean, to nurse that, to find your identity in that, that is going to keep you frozen. You will not mature. You will not grow. There's not a person in here who hasn't had a lot of hurt and a lot of disappointment. And there's probably not a person in here who hasn't had it in the church. Great hurt. Great disappointment. In fact, most people just give up on it altogether because you've had, well, listen, that is life, right? I mean, we couldn't have any relationships anywhere in any organization because I've been hurt on the job, I've been hurt in marriage and family, I've been hurt in church. I mean, I'm hurt everywhere. (laughs) How could you function if you stay away from all the people who hurt you? You couldn't. And so I have to realize I cannot just nurse these wounds to keep rewinding the tape, remind myself of how so-and-so did this or did that, you are stuck. We've got to find a way. And maybe we need somebody to stand up and say, here's what has to be done. Perhaps this is an opportunity for growth. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The 120 had been keenly aware of how the scriptures prophesied about the birth, about the death, about the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. But now Peter points out that there were prophecies about Judas. But before he gets to that, Luke inserts, in writing Acts, this little interlude of details about Judas. And he talks about, in verses 18 and 19, details about his death. Why insert these details? I mean, for most of us, it's like, you know, TMI, dude. All right, I really didn't need to know that. Maybe it's to remind us, that those who would venture out and play a key role like these 120 did, he's reminding them that, hey, you can't do the things that Judas did and not have a huge price to pay. And so he spells out in great detail what happened to him. There was divine judgment upon Judas. It was a great price to pay for that kind of wickedness. Is God merciful? Of course. Does God forgive? Yeah, but listen. Judas betrayed purposely the Son of God. He turned his back on God. And this gruesome end is detailed right down to the bloody mess as a reminder that you can't just put rejection of Christ into some benign category. As if, you know what, I think I'll just decline divine judgment from a holy, omnipotent God. I don't believe in that. Well, listen, dude, you don't get to have a choice in that matter. Because, like I just said, God is a holy, omnipotent God who will judge. Unless some think I'm just touting some Old Testament theology, it's not meant for today, you know, we're all about kumbaya, hug one another, sing. Uh, This is what Hebrews says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. God is grace, God is love, but that's not all that God is. We also read, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence, with awe of this God who is sovereign, who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, holy. Are we to think that one can reject the revelation of God's Son, And God will be fine with it? Some think that. Here's a man who was in the closest circle of 12 with Jesus. I mean, he traveled with Jesus. He attended all the meetings. And he was a poser. Let's not be so naive that everyone who comes within the church building are all in. It didn't end well for Judas. Luke provides some details that when put together with the gospel accounts, it paints a dreadful picture for him. We read in Matthew 27, then when Judas' his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. We ought to stop right there and realize there's a big difference between regret and repentance. A big difference between regret and restoration. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went, hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and Bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the price on him." Notice the, the detail by which the prophetic account in the Old Testament is, comes to pass in the New a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. The guilt of Judas was so devastating. Those 30 pieces of silver were like hot embers in his hand, and he could not even hold that. And he, he tried to return it, but not even the religious leaders who were complicit with Judas could keep that blood money. So they thought they could separate themselves from it and buy some real estate. So it was, it was Judas's money, They made the transaction, and that field to this day is known as the field of blood bought with their own wickedness. It was a tainted purchase, field of blood. And it was there that we're told that, that Judas committed suicide. He tried to hang himself, and we're not told this detail of how that happened. We don't know whether the noose gave way, the rope, or a branch broke, But he fell, and his insides gushed out. The very money that Judas bought the field, that field was the place that Judas committed suicide. It kind of all came around, and after such the horrific parenthetical detour, we then get back to Peter's account. And he quotes from the Psalms in verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. First notice that Peter's giving affirmation to the Old Testament. The Old Testament's taken a lot of knocks today from a lot of people who should know better, but he's giving praise to the Old Testament, connecting the dots to the new. And he quotes from Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-five. says, May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. It means the final resting place for the betrayer of Christ. It's not going to be a big, fancy tomb. It's going to be a place that you won't even know their names. It's a place for strangers. It's a a place nobody would even want to claim. And then he quotes from Psalm 109, 8, May his days be few, may another take his office. In other words, there's going to be a replacement for Judas in this apostolic office. Here's the amazing truth, and I think this is the, the centerpiece, at least as I see it from, from this passage. I mean, prophecy has covered the entire redemptive story from the, from the birthplace of Christ to the life of Christ to the, the death of Christ to details about the crucifixion to the, to the resurrection in fact, the last book, listen, of the Old Testament was written about 450 B.C. And, of course, Jesus arrived on the earth in the first century A.D. The Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies that came true in the life of Christ. And Judas was a part of that prophetic scheme, the part of God's plan. The point is this the apostasy of Judas, Judas, his evilness could not thwart the redemptive plan of God. God will not allow even apostasy to hinder the fulfillment of his saving purposes. You know what we can extrapolate from that? that the worst events, I can't imagine anything much worse for the apostles other than death for themselves, and that would come, but the the worst events do not negate the plans of a sovereign God. It was true for the apostles, it's true for me, it's true for you. The worst events you can think of, that thing you keep replaying, it does not negate God's sovereign plan for you. I mean, no one in the crucifixion scenario, including Annas or Caiaphas or Pilate or Herod or or the guards who who whipped Jesus, who tortured him, and who finally crucified him, none of them could thwart the plans of God. It's an amazing thing. In fact, our sovereign God used all of those people to accomplish the redemptive plan. In fact, the Holy Spirit caused David, a thousand years before the coming of Christ, a thousand years before, he caused David to write a psalm about Judas. And Peter takes that. It shows that the Holy Spirit revealed ahead of time what Judas would do. And Judas, in his evil, guided the men who came to arrest Jesus But that too, that was in the sovereign plan of God. Listen, it's it's the single biggest piece of comfort that we could have for believers when we go through struggle. And you know what else? It is the single biggest hurdle for those who reject Christ because they cannot reconcile in their head, evil and a sovereign God. It just doesn't compute. But here we see God sovereignly still at work in spite of the incredible evil. My dear friends, are you aware that you serve a sovereign God? He is not surprised by the events in your life. We are. He's not. What difference does it make for us if we acknowledge that God is sovereign over human affairs? In other words, not only does he have authority, not only does he have power, but his plans will not be thwarted. How can we rest in that? I mean, it's easy to just dismiss, you know, maybe a, a bad marriage as, you know, a bad choice. But when we see that God is sovereign, we realize that there is more at stake than our happiness. Good question to ask ourselves. Do my actions, does my attitude reflect that I am a child of a sovereign, caring God who will always accomplish his divine purposes? See, when we acknowledge the sovereignty of God, we realize we will answer to him and how we have responded to his power, to his authority in our lives. We see this throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, it's true. 1 Timothy 6 says this, But as for you, man of God, shut all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you're called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. You get the idea of a plan here, all right? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. Remember that when you didn't get the job. Remember that when the money did not come. Remember that when the doctor said the test is positive. He is the only sovereign God, king of kings and lord of lords, and that is my God and that's the one I serve. It's not a surprise to him. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Listen, there is a supreme sense of of duty, responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. We can't escape it. But we in the flesh, I mean, we, we, we rebel against these notions. And I'm talking about in-house Christians rebel against the sovereignty of God. I mean, we think we are the ones who are ultimately responsible and therefore not beholden to a sovereign God. I mean, how many times have you faced a situation, let's say like a bad marriage, and you say, you know what? I just made a mistake. I should not have married that person. And we then think that we're not obligated to any covenants involving marriage. Or in a job, we think, I made a mistake. I should not have taken this job. And when we speak that way, often we act as if our choices carry ultimate authority and get us off the hook. And if you think about it, it's a pretty arrogant position to put ourselves in because God is still sovereign in light of human volition, in light of all the choices that we've made. His plans still stand above our choices. We do not have the authority to just arbitrarily dismiss ourselves from being responsible to God, right? Or you might think you can make these choices. I think of how absurd it is to like go into work tomorrow and say to your boss, you know what? I think I made a mistake that I took this job. So I'm just going to start now coming in when I want to come in and I'll do what I want to do. And you know what? You're just going to be blessed by my presence whenever I show up. (laughs) Sounds pretty ignorant, doesn't it? But that's how a person thinks and feels and acts when he or she thinks, their choices are sovereign, not God. Dorothy Sayers, the mystery writer who's also a devoted Christian, was attempting to explain the moral law of a sovereign God. And I think she shares some needed light in this regard. She pointed out that in our society there are basically two kinds of law there's the law of the stop sign and the law. Of fire. The law of the stop sign says, you know what, at a particular corner, a a city legislature will measure traffic and they'll say, you know what, they need a stop sign. And they'll they'll incur some kind of fine for anybody who goes through the stop sign without actually stopping. And, And if the traffic increases, they might increase the fine. They have the prerogative to do that. And in the laws of the stop sign, the city council, the police... They're sovereign in a, in a finite sense. But then there's the law of the fire. And the law of the fire says that if you put your hand on a fire, you're going to get burned. Now imagine that all the legislatures in all the world got together and they said unanimously, you know what? No longer is fire going to burn. This is what man does. And then the first man or woman who leaves that assembly puts their hand on a fire. What do they find out? That's exactly right. See, even a child knows that, right? The law of the fire is different than the law of the stop sign. And bound up in the nature of life itself is the penalty for abusing that. So Dorothy Sayer says that the moral law of a sovereign God is like the law of the fire. You don't just break God's law, you break yourself. God can't reduce the penalty because the penalty for breaking his moral law is bound up in the moral universe that exists. And a sovereign God has created such a universe And the more we recognize the world that truly is, the better we can live in it and the more that we can enjoy life in Christ. And so my dear friends, in light of all that took place in the life of the apostles, the worst thing that happened, at least up to that point in terms of relationally, I mean outside of losing Jesus was the betrayal of Judas. And they had a choice, and somebody stood up and said, you know what? Okay, we're no longer going to nurse these wounds. It's time to take action. We're going to replace them. Well, one other thing. God knew this. And they put their stake down in that they were still serving a sovereign God. And that's what some of us need to do. And it's time you quit nursing the wounds. It's time you quit rolling the tape in your head of how that parent, that person hurt you. And it's time you get to growing and maturing because right now you are stuck. You are stuck because you're nursing the wound. Not to deny it, Peter (laughs) revealed it in all of its ugly detail, but then acknowledged the sovereignty of God And now we've got a job to do. And I've got a God who's still sovereign, who has a plan, and I'm going to get on board with that. And I'm not going to allow hell or high water to get in the way of accomplishing God's plan. I am a part of God's sovereign plan. What a life to live. What a perspective to have. My friends, I'm not making light of the troubles that you and I have incurred. I've got a list I could give you, but it, it wouldn't do you any good. And you know what? It doesn't do me any good either. Trust me, I know, I've tried, just like you've tried to mold over and over in your head. I've got to keep coming back to this. It's a daily reminder, in that upper room, God is sovereign. Let's pray.